and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Rasha Alakidi. Rasha is a senior analyst and the head of the non-state actors program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute in Washington. Her work focuses on non-state armed groups, political Islam, and her hometown of Mosul, Iraq. And our conversation today is all about that hometown, Mosul. Rasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for having me. Now, Mosul, it was held by ISIS and Daesh for three years before being liberated in July 2017. It's your city. You wrote about it and you were, you were born and raised there. And, and one of the pieces I, that you wrote about, you, you said, Mosul, it's not just any city. It has its own character. It wonders and distempers. Tell us about your Mosul, the city it was before those awful years, those horrific years with Daesh. Um, well, even before those horrific years, I think if we want to get to know Mosul, we have to go back to the, the pre-2003 era and possibly even before the 90s. So Mosul uh, is a city unique in its diversity. Now, all of Iraq is very diverse, that's true. But Mosul in general and uh, Mosul specifically, sorry, and Nineveh in general, the province of which Mosul is its capital, is is so unique in its diversity that the groups there are indigenous and historic. They go back thousands and thousands of years before the creation of Iraq, of course. We're talking ancient Mesopotamia, um, where all, all of it was in Mosul, all of it was in Nineveh, and all of it was in Mosul. You have the Assyrian population, the Chaldean, the Azidis. Um, historically, the Kurds have also been in several areas. The Arabs came out later on in history and merged in, and it... Um, with Dinawa creating that diversity, and also other groups uh, that are that get less talked about. You have the Afaris, you also have the Shebek, uh, you have the Kekais. All of this, you don't find this level of diversity in any other place in the country. And um, since the forming of Iraq and prior to that, when Mosali Vilayat was still a part of the Ottoman Empire, a mismanagement of diversity has left these groups um, always suffering under whether it was some form of genocide, some form of oppression, discrimination. And that was a problem that Mosul never solved, but it's people at the time they chose, they made their own cautious decision to let's just live together and get along. So it was, and that's how Mosul sort of survived throughout the years and throughout the centuries. From the forming of Iraq, um, Mosul uh, started on a bad note when there was the, with the Samil massacre against the Assyrians and who had wanted some kind of own, some kind of their own autonomous rule. And uh, after that, uh, with the different changes that happened in Iraq from the fall of the monarch in 1958 to the rise of the sort of more nationalist-centric leftist communist-leading governments that caused the, that caused the Shawaf revolution in 1959. Um, and that, that movement in particular has a lot to do with Muslim's character today because it created this pit between um, Muslim Ninawa that was historically, culturally closer to the Levant, closer to Syria, Syrian cities as Deir Zor, Aleppo, and Raqqa, then it, and even to Diyar Bakr and other northern cities of Iraq, the Kurdish uh, territory, than it was to South Iraq. There was already that cultural difference, but when the 1959 
revolution happened in Mosul, which was against, as I mentioned, the Baghdad-centric um, communist government of Abdul Karim Qasim, or communist-leaning government of Abdul Karim Qasim, it really created this di- this diverge between the two t- the two areas of Iraq, and it never really healed afterwards. People coming in from the south quilled a, a local grassroots um, resistance to what they thought was a foreign ideology to Mosul and to Ninawa. And it, that uh, quelling caused a lot of trauma for the people. And since then, Mosul has kind of been on its own. It's been this, its own isolated character. Uh, again, diversity was never really managed well, because again, when you don't have a democracy, when it's constant dictatorship rule, authoritarian rule, you cannot man- manage diversity fairly. There's always one group that is going to be empowered over the others. And in this case, they were the Sunni Arabs. Uh, in the 80s, there was the eight-year war with Iran. Um, Mosul, like the rest of Iraq, was brutalized by this, created um, this, this new context where um, orphans were beyond numbers that had been in previous decades. So orphans, widows, the social fabric of the city began collapsing under war. This was very similar to the rest of Iraq. And then in the 90s, with the economic sanctions also suffering um, almost in the same in the same way. The difference in Mosul is that being such a urban city where a significant percentage of the population rely, rely on um, their own business and their own trade, perhaps the economic sanctions were less harsh um, than they were on the rest of Iraq. I grew up in the sanctions and they were not easy, trust me. We were, we were, a, we're a family of four. Both of my parents are employees and we still sometimes did not have um, dinner every week or breakfast every week because it was just too expensive and we could not afford it. Uh, but still, it was nothing, I, would, I think, compared to the suffering that happened in the south of Iraq. Um, and even the regime itself, Saddam's Ba'athist regime, was by far crueler on the rest of Iraq than it, than it was on Ninawa and on Mosul. Mosul had at the same time a growing conservative Islamic uh, community growing in the 90s as a result of the sanctions, as a result of also some of the new management of Saddam's government that decided later on in the 90s to be to take sort of a conservative religious approach. And um, also part of the respond, uh, response to the global jihadist movement at the time, led by Osama bin Laden in the 90s, who carried out terror campaigns in different parts of the world, even prior to 9-11. All of this kind of impacted Mosul and all of it impacted it negatively. But as a city, it has its own character in that in its diversity and the site and the fact that churches and other uh, religions and and their temples are very common. It's it's not a foreign or it's not something that people would look at as to be alien to the city. Um, And it has its own very distinct character that it of, of what I, I describe as sort of fatalism, um, where Muslawis or locals of Mosul, they try not to intervene so much in politics, um, or they try not to intervene, especially if the, if who them, whom they concern to be, let's say, let's say the enemy or not even the enemy, who, who has the power at the moment, who controls the system or controls power, who has the weapons and arms, if they consider them not to be necessarily welcomed, their way of approach is never resistance. It's just waiting it out. So that's that's been their approach, whether it was to the Ba'athist, whether it was later on to the Americans, whether it was uh, to um, 
even Maliki and um, and the post-2003 order that was very discriminative against Muslim and with, with ISIS as well. The problem that this causes is that it has always left a, a vacuum for operations and for insurgency. And this is exactly where um, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS found sort of their sanctuary. Because if the people don't take a stand, um, someone has to. And, and if the people don't mind who or ignore what's on the ground, who is taking the stand and don't object to them, that gives them a lot of leeway to operate. I hope that was a, a very, very brief ex- explanation. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the fatalism of, of, of a city and the people in it who have suffered really for generations. But I'm just wondering, when Daesh first came in, what was the reaction? What was the response? Mm-hmm. So da- Daesh um, or ISIS, they did not come in void. We have to keep that in mind. They had been planning and plotting this for three, four years prior. And they managed to do that by hijacking a lot of the government's uh, um, budget, basically, that was allocated for Nineveh province. And they did that because, yes, they had infiltration. And they did that because they they manipulated a lot of uh, coercion uh, where under threats and under um, um, a lot of extortion and exploitation of the of the failing security uh, apparatuses in Iraq, they they used all of that to their benefit. So ISIS had enough funds, and they had some people on the ground in Mosul doing a lot of the dirty work for them. Um, they had succeeded over the past. This is prior to 2014. Since 2006, 2007, uh, the first Islamic State of Iraq had succeeded in assassinating a score of public employees. There was public fear of them. But in 2014, um, at the local level, there was absolute anger towards Baghdad, towards the government, towards uh, Nuril Maliki, and the way that he had also very much monopolized the army, the Iraqi army, and sort of used them as a tool against the city, against then government, Governor Athira Nujefi, and Nineveh government in general, the entire province. Uh, And they did not come in looking like ISIS in the way that was in the public perception, because ISIS at the time had been active in Syria, they had been active active in Fallujah, but the perception is that they were bearded men with uh, in sort of this Islamic attire, uh, that's not what the people saw. What they saw, they saw Iraqis. And they saw many Iraqis from different parts of Nineveh. And when they came in, they said, we are rebels. That's how they described themselves. There was even a parliament member um, who, uh, from, from Baghdad, but originally from Mosul, where she has relatives. She went on public television saying, we don't believe these are ISIS. They are locals from the city or from outside of Ninoa. And the people, a lot, a huge percentage of the people thought this might be part of a Sunni revolt, perhaps against the government, not with the intention of, um, of taking over Mosul or not with, not with the intention of um, attacking Baghdad at any time. It was sort of like a protest movement against Maliki's government, government and something that would pressure Nuril Maliki to either change his ways or perhaps have him leave post to make way for another prime minister. That was, that was the general belief. When I was in contact with so many friends, that's what they said. However, within days, that, that narrative changed. I, I still recall a friend of mine who was attempting to leave to, to the Kurdish region saying, 
this is nothing like this, Russia. We've we all got them wrong. This is the exact same ISIS that is operating in Syria and beheading people in Fallujah, and um, we're all terrified now. And like you know, within one week, it was very clear who they were. They uh, published a decree um, of of the Islamic State inside Mosul, and they forced people to follow their interpretation of very very strict Islam. And since then, you know, everything else um, went downfall from there, from their uh, threats and their extortion of the Christian community to um, how they attacked Sinjar two months later. Before even that, when they started approaching South, South Mosul and reached Salah Adin province, the spiker massacre, that a camp spiker massacre, which left over, I believe, 1,700 young Shia cadets specifically targeting the Shia. It was not even just because they were in the army, they let the Sunnis go, but they targeted the Shia cadets, massacring um, probably more than that number. Uh, and there was instant fear. And again, Mosul's way of dealing with it was just fatalism. Let's just ignore this. Let's not fight it back. Some people joined by will. Um, some people joined because they were coerced. Uh, coercion can be either forced to because they were influential people in the city, like Imam uh, mosques, for example, or public employees who were still forced um, to to actually work uh, in their same bureau- in, in their same offices and bureaus to get you know just civil life to get life sorry sort of just um, still still running such as municipality cleaners uh, workers um, and whatnot and um, others um, others joined because for them they had lost their means of income. And ISIS was providing a minimal amount of money for people who joined them. So it was a it was a, a diverse set of reasons. But it was definitely enough for them to establish themselves in the city for over two years before the liberation uh, actually started in 2016. And um, that left a massive impact um, on on everything from the city's culture to the um, the historic sites to everything else. Really, what you describe is this this sense of fatalism, and and there was this hope quickly extinguished mm-hmm. by the brutality of this really you know perverse and brutal ideology. But you know, one of the great museums of the world, the Mosul Cultural Museum, it was ransacked and precious uh, objects, artifacts destroyed, and 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 the. Uh, ISIS filmed this all, they boasted about it. I mean, what, what was your feeling when you saw that, that destruction? It was, it was rage. I was enraged because um, a lot of the sites were, um, were on the roads that I went, that I saw every single day on my way to school, whether it was elementary or middle school. So um, I, I could not imagine a Mosul without the, bull, the winged bulls, for example, Thawr al-Mujannah, the Assyrian relics. As for the museum, what ISIS actually did was there, uh, there were uh, replicates that were, un- that were not authentic. They destroyed those. The authentic pieces, they actually sold them, and it was a source of income for them. So you also see the, the hypocrisy there, where they claim that these are idols and they must be destroyed because they're against religion and it's, it's anti-Islamic, but they did use them to finance themselves. As for the larger, uh, larger pieces of relic that they could not sell, like um, the statues that were outside different places, 
um, out of revenge and also with the purpose of completely erasing any identity of Nineveh that is not related to the Islamic State, they destroyed those. And um, it was heartbreaking. And I, I still can't imagine going back to those streets and not seeing the, um, the relics there again, having been there for so long. And it wasn't just the Assyrian relics and, and the historic or the pre-Islamic uh, culture that was destroyed. Uh, Muslim had um, a culture of Islam that was uh, more of an, we, we describe it as a Northern Islam, if that makes sense. So it's very, it's similar to how religion was practi is practiced or Sunni Islam is practiced in Syria, in Turkey. So visiting shrines, for example, um, in hardcore Salafist Islam, this is con prohibited. It's not, it's considered, um, it's considered taboo and not very welcome to visit a shrine uh, of a sacred uh, sheikh or imam. Uh, in, in Shia faith, this is common. It's a very, uh, it's a very accepted, widely accepted practice. Uh, and in, in Muslim also. But when ISIS took over, one of the first thing they did was they made sure to blow up all the shrines. And these shrines were often in mosques. So you had several mosques too that were completely destroyed. It started with the with with the Jonah Mosque, uh, Prophet Jonah, uh, and the the shrine there was not of Prophet Jonah. No one has been historically been able to prove that, but it was alleged that the mount or the the hill that it was on was exactly where Prophet Jonah had prayed uh, prayed to God to free him from the from the whale. That was the legend. But there was a shrine that belonged to a. Um, to, I believe it was a Kurdish imam who had many blessings and was sacred to people. So people would come and visit often and ask for blessings and light candles the same way you see in Baghdad and you see in Najaf. Uh, that was destroyed. And after that, many other smaller tombs that were all across the city that um, cradled the, the, the grave sites of historic people that have had a massive impact on Mosul's culture. There was this one... Um, this one grave of, uh, I don't know exactly the story, so I don't want to relay it, but it was called the grave of the girl, Qabr al-Binit. Uh, that was destroyed. And it was in the center of the city, such a beautiful place, a very small place. For them, that was anti-Islamic. Several other uh, shrines and tombs completely destroyed. So they attacked everything that was not ISIS with the purpose of erasing any identity, a clean sheet for them, that's what it was. When all they did was, it was actually a black spot on the city, but for them, they wanted to rebuild and redesign the identity. And that destruction that they carried out, then the destruction that happened to the city uh, as it was liberated finally in, in July of 2017, but as you said, that that, that battle had gone on uh, for several months previously. I mean, when I look at the pictures of Mosul, it reminds me of, of pictures from the Second World War or of Ypres in the, in the First World War. Total destruction. How now is reconstruction proceeding? Because that must be just a huge, huge job. Um, it's, it's not proceeding. There is no reconstruction. Uh, first, we have to also look at Mosul as a whole. So you have the east side of the city that... Um, fairly did have its share of destruction, but it was manageable and easy to rebuild. The The landscape of the east side is because it was the more modern part of Mosul. It's it's similar to the rest of Iraq in a sense where houses are built moder in a modern way. The um, They're larger in scope as well. So that place survived. That's where my family lives and their home was left intact. Um, same thing for all my relatives and friends. 
the west west Mosul, however, it's the older part of the city. And the place that was destructed the most that took the beating was definitely the old town. And one of the reasons is that in urban warfare, um, and that's what happened in Mosul, is that it was not just an airstrike campaign uh, against a, a heavily populated area. It was also an urban warfare where you had literal tanks going in between in streets and in alleys and in cities inside the city. One missile uh, would knock down an entire street um, killing and entrapping all the all the residents inside. So the number of victims were massive. And we still have expectedly thousands of people still under the rubble that their bodies have never been recovered. As for reconstruction, Baghdad has not reconstructed anything fairly, uh, to be honest. Um, even the budget of Ninawa is perhaps one of smaller budgets in all of Iraq, despite so much um, reconstruction required. We're talking schools, hospitals, the university, everything that you've seen, like rebuilding, it's either from people's own personal pockets or organizations, international aid that's helping. Um, there has been very little interest in, from Baghdad. Even the new um, Nuri Mosque and the reconstruction around it, most of that is being funded by the United Arab Emirates with some international assistance also. And um, for if it were up to Iraq or the rest of Iraq, at least this is from a local Muslawi perspective, they would just leave the city as it is. And that's very disheartening because it kind of tells us that nothing has really been learned from this entire ISIS experience, that isolation and discrimination does not get anywhere and have consequences that are very costly. Uh, so what you are seeing now, a, civil, a growing civil society that's very independent, but it also has a Muslim character, so it's less associated with the rest of the country. You are also seeing that there is this boiling resentment, but again, dealt with by, the ma by a means of fatalism um, against the, the militias that entered the city. Initially, they were not supposed to enter. That's something that former um, Prime Minister Haider al-Abari promised, but again, his, wo her, his word appeared too weak um, before the um, influence and, and strength of these, of these groups that entered the city. These are the uh, Shia militias that came in. Yes. So you have, when we say Shia militias, you, I don't necessarily mean the entire popular mobilization forces, um, not to generalize them. But there are elements within these forces that are controversial. They have human rights violations um, documented against them. But they are still part of the PMF and they are part of the Iraqi state. And they control today a lot, much of the economy. They control today a lot of the security posts. And they are still extorting people, threatening people who don't pay them. We've seen um, restaurants blown up, people kidnapped uh, and whatnot. But again, there's, there's a lot of fear in calling them out publicly, knowing that the government is too weak to, um, to actually do anything to stop them. So we see that also happening in the city. And it's, it's I think the most disappointing thing is like I was, what I just mentioned is that it appears that no one has really learned um, anything from this experience, from the Mosul experience. And this is not even mentioning, um, because this is outside of Mosul, this is in Sinjar, that 3,000 Azidi women are still missing from Ninawa that have been abducted since, that they have not been located. That um, entire historic Assyrian and Chaldean um, villages have not returned to their lawful owners, and there's demographic change going on in different places all of this under the government's watch without it really doing anything. 
so it is it's a situation that um can implode any moment i hope it does not or definitely can create a lot of anger towards baghdad towards the central government that i believe that no one is taking serious enough yeah and i can certainly hear that from you as well that the sense of of really betrayal and and also the the tragedy of what has happened the most it just seems to continue and i mean if baghdad doesn't reach out what are the consequences then i mean where does mosul fit into the iraq that uh, people are hoping will emerge a, a stable and secure iraq what what role does mosul have I, I to be honest i i can't answer that question even when the october protest happened 2 years ago um mosul was very absent from even the protesters narrative it's not something anyone really thinks about i think it's just a it's being portrayed as a city that um betrayed iraq and embraced isis and got punished many there's the sense of very subtle schadenfreude that's still very much um that comes out from time to time when you're when just in in discussions that Mosul got what it deserved and now they're deciding that it's a Mosul problem we don't want to deal with it i i to be honest i don't know and politicians from Nineveh and from Mosul have not made that easier um corruption is the one thing everyone in Iraq seems to have in common so they're not really doing anything to help to help the city construction wise security wise um even to to halt the the massive changes and the demographic shifts that have been happening under under threat they're they're too weak to do that so it does it does not look like a an optimistic picture the only thing that slightly gives me hope is that i look at the micro level context when i grew up in mosul there was no civil society there were no discussions about religious extremism and their sources uh, and um whether or not we need to rethink how the role that religion plays in our lives there were no discussions about tolerance what that meant and also i did not grow up where i had any free speech under an authoritarian dictatorship uh it was hard for me to travel outside the country i never traveled during the sanctions whereas this generation um at least those who can they have access to see how the world is they have access to others um they know about the rest of iraq i grew up not knowing anything about basra or or najaf or or karbala they see the rest of the country and that does create a local context that is different and will definitely have by default a different outcome but it just might take time for this this civil society to sort of be nurtured and um grow in a way that can serve the city we might not see it now but that's the one thing that gives me hope mm-hmm. and and your own family still there in in mosul Uh my family left the city to a safer place. I prefer not disclosing where, but um I do have extended family here and there. Um uh but most families have honestly been shattered a- apart. So you see someone in Mosul, the other in Kurdish area, someone in Turkey, someone immigrating to the US. That's I think um that's that's just the part that's the reality of of displacement and and war and it's not unique to Mosul. Um but that's just where we are now and the future you you hope but you don't dare hope too much for the future of mosul it's a it's the a, a sense of cautious hope that i've i've had personally and i think a lot of iraqis also not just muslawis share this 
with me since the post 2003 era there was cautious hope that dictatorship is gone maybe now we can have some freedom even though an occupation is never fun is never something anyone can fully embrace that did not happen um we look sometimes you know the in Iraq's case it's not the it's not a a half full uh, cup or glass it's a it's filled a lot less it's not it's not half full but you can always look at at the positives um and hope that something can come out from that like i said i'm very hopeful in this generation they're doing extraordinary given the context that they live in um and from this something positive is bound to happen rasha thank you thank you very much thank you bill you've been listening to the herb digest podcast my guest today was rasha alakidi a senior analyst and the head of the non-state actors program in the human security unit at the new lines institute if you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check us out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Music